It's the 19th of October, and you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 33rd episode. We are back to discussing sustainable and responsible investing today. Our guest is Andreas Rush, Professor of Business and Society at the Copenhagen Business School's Center for Corporate Social Responsibility. I think it is also known as CBSCSR. Andreas is also the Associate Dean of the school's MBA program. In addition to his contributions to academia, Andreas has collaborated with the United Nations on a number of projects and served on the United Nations Global Compact Lead Steering Committee. He is Associate Editor of Business Ethics Quarterly, an Associate Fellow at the Warwick Business School and Visiting Professor at Stockholm School of Economics. Andreas, welcome to Kopi Time. Thank you very much, Tamu. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, let's just set the background for our listeners. Uh, tell us about what you do at Copenhagen Business School. I've already read out that you know you are a professor of business and society at the Copenhagen Business School Center for Corporate Social Responsibility. I've also read out that you have an associate dean status at the MBA school. But tell us a bit about you know what classes you teach and how things are going with respect to teaching and academia as far as this pandemic is concerned. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I mean, uh, my, my main research, um, obviously, is uh, on the governance of sustainability. I put quite a lot of emphasis on sustainable finance, governance dynamics within sustainable finance, also, with re also related uh, to technology. Um, in terms of classes, I, I, I teach, of course, our mainstream um, sustainability class in the MBA, uh, which has also a strong sustainable finance uh, component. So um, that certainly is always fun to teach. And uh, this year, um, obviously, uh, um, we, we, we face a number of challenges, but, but overall, actually, Denmark is doing quite, quite okay, I must say, in terms of the number of cases. So we are still with face-to-face -face teaching, um, which is rare these days. Um, so we have a fully face-to-face -face curriculum um, and only some very small online um, activities. Um, but obviously, we need to see what is happening in the next couple of weeks um, to, to see whether we can uh, whether we can stick to this face-to-face um, -face teaching. Um, the, the teachers love it. I love it as well um, because it is obviously always better to see the students in a classroom to interact with them, particularly around topics like sustainable finance where you, you, you want to see people's emotions. And uh, this is something, of course, which um, often gets lost in online teaching. Is face-to-face uh, -face with mask or without mask? It's without mask. Um, I mean, students can voluntarily wear masks if they if they like to. Um, but um, the the our main precautionary measures are that um, there is a social distance uh, between the students, which also, by the way, means we have uh, less room capacity, right? I mean, if you have a room of hundred and you can only fit fifty, um, then um, CBS overall faces uh, a, a number of constraints there. Um, but um, we, we feel overall actually certain that, that we are taking the right measures, but a lot will depend obviously on, on how the pandemic um, will, will unfold um, in the cold season that is um, ahead of us. Yes, yes. And, and we're seeing in Europe, uh, especially in Southern and Western Europe already, uh, there's been some pickup in infections and France and Spain and the UK. So I wish you the best of luck. And of course, the first best solution is face-to-face -face teaching, as you absolutely correctly say, that nothing beats live human interaction when you're discussing issues that are open to question and discussion. Uh, Zoom doesn't work that well over those things. Exactly. exactly. Uh, all right. Let's get down to business, Andreas, if I may. 
Um, your work is focused on the intersection of corporate responsibility, politics, and strategic management in the governance of contested global issues. I just said lots of big words, so you'll have to break it down for us. Uh, you've also just published a book uh, titled Sustainable Investing, A Path to a New Horizon with co-authors Herman Brill and Jörg uh, Kell. Uh, you stress in the book that the idea and practice of corporate sustainability is no longer a niche movement and investors are increasingly paying attention to sustainability. Of course, coming from DBS, 100% agreement with you on that, Andreas. Uh, early on in the book, you write, uh, sustainable investing is not about philanthropy or giving up returns. The value of investments is not only determined by short-term profits, but influenced by many long-term global drivers, including technology, natural resources, environment, geopolitics, interdependencies of globalization, shifts in social norms, inequality, and demographics. Clearly, I'm quoting from the introduction of the book because the rest of the book's chapters break these issues down, and we will try to also break a few of these things down. So let me begin by asking you about a term that you use from the very get-go, VUCA, V-U-C-A. What is VUCA and why is it relevant for the future of firms? So VUCA um, stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Um, and and we, we use this term um, because we believe that sustainable investing is unfolding in a world where you have these four characteristics shaping very much what investors and corporations are doing. It was actually originally invented by the um, U.S. Uh, Army War College um, after the collapse of the, uh, the USSR. Um, and they realized um, suddenly the, the one enemy was missing, right? So the world for them was becoming enormously complex because there were multiple animal enemies. And some of them were not even visible to them. Um, and then they came up with this, uh, with this concept of VUCA. And um, we believe it, it, it has a high degree of relevance for corporate sustainability in general, and particularly for sustainable finance. The main message here is, you know, there is not this one way of, of managing sustainable finance. Um, leadership has to be contextualized, it has to be adaptive, and it also has to some degree be individualized. And I think this is something when you when you look at the sustainable finance uh, discourse, which probably is is not quite there yet. Um, it probably is a message that corporate leaders have not really um, have not really received yet, because there is a lot of standardization around. We try to standardize here and there. We try to standardize corporate practices, and all of this is good and fine. But I think we we need to be aware that whoever manages whoever manages in favor of uh, um, um, investment practices that are su sustainable needs to have this contextualized understanding because the world around us is changing so swiftly. So what you need, strictly speaking, is a kind of a, let me maybe call it a post-heroic manager um, who admits that uh, she or he doesn't know it all, who accepts uncertainty, who thinks in scenarios and, 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 and favors adaptability, as I said before. And I think this is something which, particularly um, um, in finance, I think is, is something that we don't see that often and that we don't find that often. So I think one key argument in the book with regard to VUCA is, if we take a VUCA world seriously, we do not just need to change the practices of sustainable finance, we also need to change the way that leaders think about sustainable finance. 
and by leaders, you're of course talking about not just corporate leaders, but uh, leaders in academia, because you also want the approach to analyzing these issues to be influenced by the VUCA concept. And you also certainly want politicians and government authorities to have this view. And this, this is a very critical point. I really appreciate that you are starting our conversation with this issue because a lot of the debate around climate change is that, you know, I am right and you're wrong. Uh, well, global warming is, you know, an idea, not a fact. And, and I think you are sort of setting the background that there is a huge number of scenarios. Most of them point toward fairly dire things if we don't get our path right. And, and we will be foolhardy if we don't address those large number of scenarios out there. Uh, and, and it may well be that, you know, one can get very, very lucky and a brilliant technology comes and saves the day or uh, some other thing happens, but we cannot build our lives and the future mm -hmm. of our investment and society based on those tiny scenarios. It has to be based on the broader likelihoods out there. Exactly, exactly. I think this is also the message we were trying to, to, to bring across, you know, think in scenarios and, and, you know, let's move away from this right and wrong, very oppositional thinking. And I think this is something which is at the heart of the book, um, um, which is, by the way, a mixture in the book between practitioner voices and academic voices. And we deliberately designed it that way because we said we want people from different backgrounds to, to reflect um, on the changing context of sustainable investing. Okay, so Andres, if I were to be like some Wall Street finance guy, I would say, well, you know, we have black controls models to you know, come up with derivative pricing in which we look at implied volatility from the past behavior of prices. So other than you know, looking at the past and the volatility around that, when we make projections, what more can we take into account? Uh, I mean, what would your response be to such sort of mechanistic way of saying that, well, we don't really know the future. All we have is the past and all we can do is extrapolate out of that. Well, I think, um... I mean, this of course relates a little bit to the to the current underpinning of a lot of finance uh, um, thinking, which is based on neoclassical economics. And and let and let me say here, I do not necessarily think that neoclassical economics is is brutally wrong. Um, I simply believe that um, it was developed at a time um, where the VUCA world that we just talked about uh, um, didn't exist, at, at least not in the in, in the way it exists today. So I think if we want to appreciate the current zeitgeist, uh, so to say, as the Germans uh, um, always call it, the, the, the spirit of the time, so to say, we have to acknowledge that we need a different theoretical vocabulary also and different theoretical models um, uh, that, uh, that, that allow us to, to, to assess what is going on um, in markets and also that allow us to respond to the shifting market conditions. So I think what, 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 what I would call or what, what I would tell somebody who, who's very much obsessed with this kind of neoclassical foundations is look into, you know, whether ESG risks and opportunities, and by ESG I mean environmental, social and governance risks and opportunities are actually priced into company value. Um, take the example of climate risks, and, and, and here you, you clearly see, no, it is not yet fully priced um, into, uh, into company value, um, even though we have increasing legislation around this, um, even though, you know, we are increasingly uh, leveling the playing field. So I think at the end of the day, it is, it is, much, about, uh, it is much about getting a more realistic understanding here. A second example would be individual rationality. Um, and, and here I would say, 
the neoclassical models that we have, they, they basically promote, at least for my taste, too much individual rationality. Yes, people are mainly rational, um, but they also tend to overreact in times of strong market volatility. Um, and, and in the book, for instance, we use a lot the work by Andrew Lowe on the adaptive market hypothesis, um, where, where he basically claims investors are people and people make mistakes. Um, and, you know, whenever they make mistakes, they adapt over time, they learn from these mistakes. And, and in this sense, investing actually can learn a lot from evolutionary thinking and from adaptive systems thinking, which some of the contributors to the book have also used. Um, personally, I love the, the second chapter by, by Simon Levin, who, by the way, is a, is a biologist um, um, from Princeton, uh, together with Martin Reves from the, um, from the BCG Henderson Institute. And, and they very well outline, I think, um, how such a different paradigm of, of thinking can look like. So I think the bottom line here is not to kind of say, hey, um, it is neoclassical in non-economics, efficient market hypothesis versus some, something else. It is, it is about finding ways to supplement our traditional thinking by, by other theoretical insights that allow for a more realistic take on things. Andres, I, I fully uh, appreciate your point. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that we did in school and early years of academia, we use this issue of you know, detrending data and look, thinking of properties of most data series in stationary versus non-stationary terms. When you look at sort of you know, global temperature and things like that, uh, clearly non-stationary series, I mean, the variances are widening, the, the mean is widening. Uh, it doesn't you know, lend itself to sort of detrending and coming up with some sort of a stochastic process around mean, which in, in many ways you know, sat at the heart of a lot of our uh, uh, sort of data-driven approach to understanding economics and data series. So, so when I come to this issue, I, I, and I find resonance in what you say, is that, yes, there are profound implications of uh, some of the thinking behind neoclassical economics and the way we run the world, the way we observe human behavior. Some, a lot of it is influenced by that. But that doesn't mean it's a sacrosanct uh, science. I mean, first of all, it's not that old. Uh, barely, you know, uh, 50, 60 years, if you talk about the hardcore um, uh, sort of algebra and differentiated equation-based core of uh, neoclassical economics, okay, 70 years at most. Uh, but when you go beyond that, uh, economics was also a very different field. So it doesn't mean that what was there in the last 70 years has to be the zeitgeist forever. Um, exactly. So, uh, Andres, so generally speaking, um, there has been a lot of sort of you know, criticism about sort of neoclassical approaches to finance leading into the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. Uh, and then we've seen a lot of regulation to sort of undo some of those uh, uh, sort of, you know, strong belief that the market would have a way of correcting itself. I remember Greenspan saying that, you know, his logic had a slight flaw because he felt that, you know, banks, if they were allowed to self-regulate, would take care of themselves. So I, I think that, you know, even in hardcore finance, people have sort of moved on a bit that you can't just rely on market-based solutions. You have to worry about negative externalities and how to internalize them and so on. Um, but from your vantage point, I, I heard you say a little bit that you know, you're not sort of giving up on efficient market hypothesis, but you are perhaps even more open to modifications and adjustments to our sort of core things that we learned as students in graduate school. Yes, indeed, indeed. I think we, we need to bring um, these kind of different types of thinking into the classroom. And, and, and this is, for instance, something that I do quite a lot in my sustainable finance classes, um, where I usually, you know, we, we don't start with um, 
kind of immediately reviewing sustainable finance as a practice. We talk a lot about the, the, the theoretical underpinnings of the, of the debate. Um, and then we quickly usually arrive at a discussion about efficient market hypothesis versus adaptive market hypothesis. And I, I'm always telling students, don't, don't see it so much as an opposition. Um, philosoph philosophers would probably tell you any opposition can be deconstructed. And it's, it's the same here. Try more to see, you know, how can both work together? Um, and, and as I said before, with regard to individual rationality, yes, there are times where people are rational. But there are also times, um, and, and I think COVID-19 is a very good example, right? Because it, it's a, it, uh, there was a strong reaction in the market um, where, where people do not act rational. Um, and this is where we need behavioral economics, where we need insights from behavioral economics in order, in order to uh, provide students also with the tools and frameworks for them to understand actually what is going on. And I think economics has made a lot of progress here. Um, in the in the last years um, with regard to um, kind of merging insights from behavioral economics also into into finance so I think there is a lot to uh, to build up on and um, I clearly do not just you know teach the the, 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 the neoclassical way of, of framing things uh, we move much beyond this in my classes and and usually students walk away with a quite I would say realistic picture of, of what's going on. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I'm also hopeful, Andreas, because when we look at the new generation of academics uh, uh, in, in the you know, research institutions around the world, you know, data driven approach, and as you just alluded to, using behavioral science as a way of understanding uh, consumer behavior uh, and the sort of bounded rationality or adaptive expectations, what have you, I think it's encouraging that uh, we're not sort of stuck at uh, some sort of uh, old dogma. But speaking of dogma, I'm going to bring in a little bit of controversy here. Uh, the 2018 Nobel Prize was uh, in economics was given to uh, William Nordhaus and Paul Romer. And uh, Nordhaus's, uh, I think the quotation was, you know, he received the work because of his pioneering work done in the 1970s in integrating climate change into long-term macro analysis. Now, I think I've already heard you say that, you know, what we used to build our models around and our worldview around in the 1970s and 80s is very different from the way we have now. We have so much urgency about climate change and the fossil fuel emission and rising sea levels. So would you say that although the prize was only given two years ago, um, it, we have actually kind of moved on from the Nordhausian School of Economics? Well, you know, the price always lags a little bit behind, right? So, yeah, 30 to 40 <laughs> so, years, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so um, let me first of all start by saying I think Nordhaus is a, he's a great economist. Um, so he's, uh, um, same with Paul Romer. I mean, they, they certainly deserved uh, um, this prize and they did some, some really groundbreaking trailblazing work. Um, he, Nordhaus in particular is arguably the inventor of the modern economics of climate change, especially carbon taxing. So um, a lot of this has been extremely important uh, um, also for the evolution of the debate around climate change, which actually in the mainstream only started after the millennium. Um, whether I would say, is there something wrong? Yes, I, I think there is. Uh, um, I think, uh, of course, some of the claims that, that Nordhaus has uh, brought forward remain contested. Um, and, and I think this has a lot to do, you know, with the, with the neoclassical underpinnings that he was working with at the time. 
And, and I think it all comes down at the end to that he underestimates the, dam the dangers of climate change. Um, if I remember correctly, I think he basically said uh, um, three degrees of warming would just cause around 2% of loss of global GDP. Um, and of, of course, we, we know that from most models, also by the IPCC, um, that, that this is a gross um, underestimation and it depends quite a lot on what theoretical assumptions you work with. And, and I think my, my greatest fear here would be that, you know, it sets wrong incentives for governments to delay actions. Um, it's something that we've seen throughout these different rounds of COP uh, uh, negotiations um, and also the um, admittedly uh, good but still rather weak Paris Accord. Um, we, we still see, you know, that, that governments are still, not, are still not there in terms of really reacting to this with uh, strong force. And I think maybe, you know, these type of theoretical insights might pave the way for such type of underreaction. There are also a couple of, I think, um, assumptions in the, in the Nordhausian uh, models. For instance, he assumes that climate change um, will affect all industries, um, not just a few. Um, and of course, uh, this is something which, um, well, which is probably not realistic um, because climate change has far-reaching effects on all regions and all industries, uh, um, and surely some more than others, um, but it, still the effects will be more widespread uh, than assumed by, by Nordhaus. So overall, I would say um, great academic work, also very pioneering academic work, but of course, some of the assumptions, particularly from a sustainable finance perspective, they remain contested. All right, that takes immediately to my very next question is that, you know, how should we think about sustainable finance, both investing and lending? I know you've written a whole book about that and you will not tell <laughs> us everything, but give us your uh, current thinking on this matter. Uh, I'm always encouraging, and, and I tell you know what, what I also tell my, my executive MBA students, um, a lot of them are actually from the financial, um, in this financial services industry, and I, I always say, Think about it as the new normal. Don't think about it as, a, as an exception, you know, as something extraordinary. What used to be a fringe practice, um, particularly in the 90s and also after the millennium, um, which was tied towards some specialty investors, very often religious type of investors who just screened out certain stocks based on their beliefs, um, is now really turning mainstream. Um, I think what we are seeing right now is um, that sustainable finance, the sustainable finance debate is a debate that uh, um, uh, where you really see very strong movements on the market. Um, I remember looking at statistics uh, during COVID, there was a major inflow into ESG, um, um, ESG related funds, um, obviously because some investors uh, try to uh, make risk adjustments. And um, in this sense, I think we need to think about it as the new normal because also this new normal um, is based on a by now well-developed infrastructure. Um, and what I mean by infrastructure is new legislation, a number of new initiatives connecting different actors in the field. And I think this, all of this gives us uh, the impression that the field has matured a lot over the last, uh, um, over the last years and that it actually has helped investors to better appreciate the risk and opportunities that are related to, um, to sustainability-related topics. And one very tangible outcome of, those, of this is that 
actually investors are better able to capture the intangible factors that shape corporate value. If you consider ESG factors, it basically means that you are aware of risk and opportunities. And for instance, I was just a few minutes ago talking about climate risk that, that need to be assessed differently. And, and I believe if we, if we accept that sustainable finance is the new normal, and um, if we also accept that in some regions of the world, it is increasingly being regulated um, so that the playing field is leveled, um, we, will, we will probably see um, a quite, hopefully we will see a quite different financial system um, in, in 10 years from now. Yeah, I mean, we are very encouraged. Uh, my colleague, Michael Larson, who you know, uh, who does our core work for sustainability in DBS, and we have several colleagues in the wealth management side in DBS. And our, you know, day-to-day -day thinking, many days, you know, we, we begin the day where Ms. Mikhail sort of shares with us some idea about sustainability in agriculture or food production or recycling. And then, you know, what are the investable options out there and how you get investors interested and excited about that. Uh, I'm sort of thinking about the first issue that we discussed, the, the VUCA world. Um, I think one thing that I find among investors is that they want to do good, but they also want certainty. But we are telling them immediately that the world is actually fairly uncertain and even your conventional investments are not giving you certain returns. So why do you expect your sustainable investments would give you certain returns? But uh, do, you, do you face that challenge that to convince people that you're not necessarily embracing additional risk? Everything is subject to risk given the uncertainty around climate change. Certainly. Uh, my, my natural reaction to this would be, of course, un uncertainty is a, is, a, is a condition we simply need to accept, both for sustainable and also um, non-sustainable, so non-ESG type of investments. But I think as an investor, you're better prepared um, um, for the future if you consider um, sustainability-related topics because it allows you um, to consider risks much better. Uh, risks and also opportunities, uh, market growth, for instance, innovation. Um, um, this is something which, uh, um, which actually um, research also now during the COVID crisis um, has shown that ESG funds um, perform better than, than traditional funds. Of course, I mean, this is a complicated debate and, and uh, why they performed better, um, um, we, we need to be careful to judge here because the attribution uh, um, is, is, is uh, difficult. Um, one reason was clearly that they um, include more tech stocks, um, um, ESG funds include more tech stocks and less energy stocks. And uh, so this is something, of course, which naturally led to, to better performance. But I think it is also because um, investors see that once you consider um, broad scale risks, for instance, climate risks, water risks, um, once you consider this within your investments, um, you, you, you have a more resilient portfolio. And um, I think this is something which, which has now also, the message has arrived um, um, at investors. So it is something which uh, they increasingly appreciate. I think Andreas, just looking at conventional energy stocks, which were seen as reliable four or 5% dividend paying stocks, you know, the ones from Holland and UK and elsewhere, uh, the way they have underperformed in recent years, particularly this year, 
itself, I think, has been a huge wake-up call for pension funds, sovereign wealth managers, who used to find it very easy to invest in energy stocks because they were such high-paying, dividend-paying uh, companies. Uh, seems like those days are behind us, and and perhaps that's the uh, takeaway from this COVID crisis: that uh, in in times of deep risk aversion, you will not have that sort of reliability from the old workhorses like uh, uh, oil majors and gas majors. Yes, I think that that could indeed be one of the key takeaways um, that we need to rethink um, what is a reliable investment and how do we assess reliability in the first place? Yes. Um, Andreas, the role of corporate leadership. I mean, this is a big subject, uh, but it is a very important one. Uh, Without companies taking responsibility and leadership, uh, I don't think that governments and civil society would be able to succeed. Um, so what role do you see corporate leadership play when it comes to ESG investing? And are you pleased with the developments we are seeing in recent years? I think it's, it's a great question because it's, uh, um, leadership from the corporate side is key. If we want investors to think long-term, um, companies also need to think long-term, right? I mean, the one and, uh, and the other, they both, uh, um, they both enrich themselves. So I think what, what, what I have seen, um, and I'm actually currently writing a, a small essay on it, is that there is, of course, leadership for, for corporate sustainability. Also because investors are putting pressure on companies, by the way. Um, however, this leadership operates very much on the surface. Um, and I, I usually call this, it, it is a kind of a transition management. So corporate leaders, what they do is they modify actions, they modify systems, for instance, data gathering systems. They align with uh, standards that are out there. Um, and there's nothing wrong with this. this. This is all good and right. But what they are actually missing is, um, or what they are maybe neglecting, is that in order to successfully integrate sustainability into the corporation, you also need to change the minds of people. So it is also a cultural change that needs to happen. Um, And I think this is where very few organizations, very few corporations are actually doing a good job. Most of them follow the crowd. Most of them are, most corporations are doing what all other corporations are doing as well. They set up processes, they set up systems, um, they, they set, also set up structures, by the way, so they create departments and, and you know, embed it into the organizational structure. But what we need more of is we need more culture-based thinking. We need more, you know, that, that uh, C-level executives, and, but also managers in the, in the, in the mid-ranks in, in, in a corporation, that they, be, that they acknowledge that you need to change the minds of people, you need to change their beliefs in the very purpose of a corporation um, in order for this to have lasting effects. So I think this is the clear leadership mandate here to move beyond these very operational changes, which a lot of corporations are doing these days. And as I said, this mostly has bandwagon effects, right? One one of the big players is doing it and the others are starting also to do it. And acknowledge that this transition type of management is only successful if you add a cultural dimension to it in the long run. And I think this is then where we really where we really see um, um, leadership, uh, uh, where we really see leadership tasks, um, for instance, also um, um, with regard to the role of boards of directors, which have not been as engaged in the debate as they actually should have been. 
Are you looking at corporate leadership only in Europe and the US or have you sort of paid attention to what's happening in our part of the world in Asia? I must admit it is uh, um, due to the research projects which I have ongoing right now, it is mostly in Europe and the US. Um, so I cannot give you too much detailed information about Asia. Well, we tend to take our cues on these sort of zeitgeisty stuff uh, from what's happening in the West, so which is which is fine. Um, but uh, between Europe and US, um, which part of the Atlantic encourages you more? I, I usually tend to side with Europe, not because I'm living here, um, but because I think it's it's more because um, I think in the US. Uh, translating the talk into the walk is usually taking a little longer. Um, and, you know, in the US, there was this big statement on corporate purpose um, 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 a, little, a little while back um, by the business roundtable. And, and all of this is well intended and it actually reaches in the direction that I was just talking about. Um, but sometimes I think that leaders here in Europe, they have more implicitly embraced this agenda already um, without needing the external stimulus. And I think it has probably also a little bit to do with the way that the economies are set up here. A lot of the European economies are, are having strong welfare systems. And, and so leaders, by their very nature, they, they, they think a little bit differently. I'm, of course, based in Scandinavia here, and I can say that, that Denmark in particular is a, is a high-trust society um, where where leaders uh, naturally look for collaboration and partnership um, and, and do not necessarily um, only look for, for individual type of solutions. And of course, this uh, supports these culture-based shifts that I was just talking about. Um, of course, it is a hypothesis, I need to admit as a scientist, um, um, which I have not tested yet. But it's such a critical issue, the issue of trust. And, you know, if we're going to go anywhere meaningfully on climate change, uh, you know, trust with scientists, trust with policymakers, trust with the corporate leadership is all so critical. Uh, I mean, and this year has shown more than anything else that, you know, when people don't have trust in what the governments tell them, even in a matter of pandemic, which is almost existential, People don't listen to the scientists and people don't listen to health officials. Um, exactly. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you've, you've brought that up. Um, uh, Andreas, um, your book has a fairly detailed section on the uh, emerging link between sustainable investing technology and big data. Can you give us a flavor of the ideas in that? Yes, sure, sure. Um, one big idea, I think, uh, relates to the importance of artificial intelligence and machine learning for sustainable investing. Um, frankly, there is very little written about this. And I think this is um, where practitioners, but also academics need to do much more work. Um, one of the big shortcomings also that I see um, of, of sustainable investing is that a lot of the data that we are using these days in order to assess the ESG performance of a company is self-reported data. You know, it comes from the companies themselves. And studies have actually shown that even though, uh, um, even though this data is increasingly standardized and corporations need to comply with certain guidelines, um, it is still rather biased. I think there was a study from 2018 basically saying that a large portion of, of negative incidents with regard to ESG um, are not actually part of these reports. So this kind of shows that we need to supplement, we need to supplement the type of data that we are having here um, with other types of data. 
And this other types of data could, for instance, be um, yeah, news data, social media data. Um, and then, of course, this immediately gives us the uh, um, gives us the the hint towards um, artificial intelligence uh, algorithms, you know, that analyze this type of data. So I think one big task here is find other sources of data, for instance, to to uh, um, to measure a company risk vis-a-vis uh, -vis certain risk categories. And this can be done also by analyzing, you know, a large universe of news items. So this is the one uh, um, big topic that we are discussing in the book. Um, and, and we were very grateful to have Omar Selim as, as one of the co-authors uh, uh, here, as one of the contributors, because he's heading up uh, Arabesque, uh, which is uh, a quant fund, um, a quant fund that uh, um, entirely bases um, ESG-related analysis on, on yeah, artificial intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I think he gave some, he gives some really good insights there. Uh, the other big topic, sorry? I just also say it's fascinating. It's fascinating indeed, indeed. And we know way too little about it. Um, I actually tried to do a, a, a literature research on it and, and I found very little to be honest. Uh, so I think Omar's kind of first-hand information uh, on, on how to do this is, is actually fascinating. I think the other strong contribution is about uh, comes from Ashby Monk and his team at Stanford. Um, and they basically said, we also need to put an eye on potential, the potential limits of sustainability data, limits in the way that sustainability data can also be exploited by others. Um, because such data is not yet very regulated. And, and often there are no requirements to release such data publicly um, and, and, and this, of course, can lead to a situation, you know, where others misuse such type of data, um, where corporations misuse such type of data, for instance, to get a favorable rating by, by, uh, uh, by rating agencies and then have favorable reactions by investors. And the same is true for investors. Investors also need to protect themselves against manipulation. Um, so investors naturally try to protect themselves against, for instance, account accounting fraud. Um, why don't they do the same thing with regard to sustainability-related information? And these are questions which are, which are discussed in the book, and, and I find them fascinating, and it is actually one of the topics also where I want to push my own research a little bit in the future, because I think the role of data metrics and the reliability of data and metrics will be key to the future evolution of the sustainable investing field. And this is absolutely critical, uh, Andreas. And also, I'm glad that finally there will be some convergence because we're already seeing on the regulatory side, um, whether it is the uh, various climate change initiatives or even, for example, central banks like ECB has gotten very serious about the uh, risk uh, to financial sector from climate change and the way they are sort of revising up their estimates of potential loss in GDP and the annual cost of remedial measures, very, very different from anything that William Nordhaus would have done. So they have sort of started running. I wouldn't say that their pace is being matched by other central banks around the world, although my understanding is that PBOC in China is also getting fairly serious about the intersection of financial risk and climate risk. But as fund managers and academics um, also bring in more ways of looking at the risks and capture uh, uh, data from all the different ways of, you know, uh, we, we can capture information from, 
I think it'll be it'll be a win-win. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, your book is filling a vacuum because on the regulatory side, we have a lot of action, but on the non-regulatory private sector side, uh, I think this book was uh, waiting to be published. Um, Andres, uh, the crisis that we are in, the coronavirus crisis and the economic crash, uh, we talked earlier that, you know, maybe we will see that, you know, energy stocks are not as reliable. Maybe that'll be one takeaway from this pandemic. Um, we'd like you to see through the fog of this pandemic a little further, if you may, and visualize the future of ESG and sustainable investing for us. Yes, um, I think it's a crucial question. Uh, um, well, I think the, the future of sustainable investing, um, I would say there are two strong building blocks. The, the first one is ESG has moved and continues to move mainstream. Um, there, is, there was a huge inflow in, into ESG funds uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, so I think what we are seeing here is not a practice uh, um, that should or, and that will be treated as a fringe practice. It is something that will be at the very heart of, of finance for the years to come. I think the other big topic is resilience. Um, we know by now that ESG promotes resilience, resilience, but it is also resilient itself. Um, there were lots of people during the pandemic who kind of said, well, you know, will ESG withstand, you know, the, 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 this crisis? Um, but ESG funds performed well throughout the crisis. Uh, um, as I said, attribution probably remains a challenge uh, that needs to be solved. But ESG turned out to be a resilient strategy itself. And if you have a strategy that is mainstream and resilient, I think um, you, have, uh, um, um, you have something that will significantly influence the way business is done in the future. And you ask about visualization and, and, and you know, how should we visualize the future of ESG? And I always tell my students, think about ESG, think about sustainable investing as a tree that has grown significantly in recent years. The tree is strong, it can withstand bad weather, it has strong roots that hold it firmly within the ground and it keeps growing. And I think this is one good way to visualize things. Oh, that's, that's really great. Uh, you know, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head. We worried about this issue as well. And Mikkel and I actually wrote an article about, you know, will climate change get sidelined by this coronavirus crisis? And our view was uh, absolutely not, but it was more of, you know, assertion and hope. Uh, but I think the point that you make that, you know, seven, eight months hence, when you look back at the performance of uh, stocks with a focus on environmental sustainability, uh, they have done pretty well and held up pretty well. And I think that is a big, you know, passing grade that uh, ESG investments uh, get this year. So thank goodness for that. And then hopefully, you know, thanks to efforts from people like you, we will see further progress in this absolutely critical area. Uh, Andreas Rush, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Tamo, to be here today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you. Indeed. Uh, thanks to our listeners as well. Copy Time was produced by Martin Taki. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 33 episodes of Copy Time are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our DBS research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.